welcome to Spiritual Wanderlust, where we explore our interior life in search of the sacred. Many of us will travel the whole world to find ourselves, but here we'll follow those longings within to our spiritual and emotional landscapes. In each episode, we'll talk with inspiring guests, contemplative teachers, embodiment experts, neuropsychologists, and mystics. With a blend of ancient wisdom and modern science, along with a healthy dash of mischief, we'll deep dive into divine intimacy and what it means to be whole. I'm your host, Kelly Deutsch. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Spiritual Wanderlust podcast. My name is Kelly Deutsch, and today I am excited to introduce you to the activist, spiritual director, and Episcopal priest with dreads, no less, Father Adam Bucko. Uh, I think you might be the first priest that I've met who who has dreads, and I'm totally here for it. (laughs) After growing up in Eastern Europe, Adam went on to spend many years working with homeless youth in New York in his award-winning organization, the Reciprocity Foundation. He's long been dedicated to a life of engaged contemplation and is remembered for being a founding father of the new monastic movement. He currently serves as the director of the Center for Spiritual Imagination and is a member of the Community of the Incarnation, which is a new monastic community dedicated to democratizing the gifts of monastic spirituality. He's the author of several books, including his latest, Let Your Heartbreak Be Your Guide, Lessons in Engaged Contemplation. Welcome, Father Adam. Thank you so much, uh, Kelly, for this invitation and for this time together. Yes, absolutely. I've been so looking forward to it. Me too. I wanted to start off today by asking you a little bit about your upbringing, because you grew up in a very different context than most Americans. Um, You were in Poland under a totalitarian regime. And I'm curious if you would tell us a little bit about what that was like and how that shaped who you are today. Yes, Uh, so I was born in 1975, uh, and my early years happened before the system changed in Eastern Europe. Uh, So I was growing up in 1980s, uh, and it was a very different context. Uh, You know, the majority of people of Poland were sort of forced to function outside of the mainstream society. We had to organize our own networks to uh, pass on information about what was really happening in our country. We had to create networks to distribute food. Um, As I remember very well during my childhood, a lot of items uh, were portioned. You would receive tickets from the government in terms of you know, how many pounds of proteins or other things you could buy per family, and it wasn't very much. Mm. Um, And so I grew up with this sense that here I am living in this society that was not created to support my basic needs, Mm. that was not really created to be able to nurture my longings, Mm. or facilitate or help to facilitate any kind of a life of meaning and purpose. Mm. Um, And so that was my context. Uh, Growing up in 1980s was in some ways a very scary experience. Uh, I don't know if you might be too young to experience the Chernobyl disaster, Mm. too young to remember the the Chernobyl disaster, you know, the nuclear thing that happened in what is now Ukraine. You know, things like that would happen. And uh, that was just like 300 miles from where I was living. And our government didn't tell us about it until we were exposed to the radiation, even though they themselves were hiding in, um, you know, in anti-nuclear shelters and stuff. Um, Images of people, you know, being run over by tanks on the streets. I mean, all of that was somehow present all around, even though I grew up in a very loving family 
that cared for me deeply and etc um so i think my my search for god uh, happened out of necessity mm. to find something that i can rely on mm. um and in poland of course a lot of the systemic uh changes that took place uh were inspired by protest movements that were grounded in the church mm. that preached nonviolence mm. and so that too inspired me very much you know uh i saw priests who were very courageous priests who were not afraid to speak truth to power our own parish priest was killed by the government uh because he dared to uh name the oppression yeah. and try to gather people to pray for a different kind of reality to emerge in our midst the reality based on democracy non-violence and justice um, so i think that was my context you know and in that context you have to deal with your suffering uh and i felt like i needed to search for this kind of a something mm. that would be able to that would enable me to hold all the stuff of our lives with a sense of um you know just feeling like i'm being held with all of that mm. mm -hmm. that's a lot <laughs> like i can only imagine um the contours interiorly that that carved in you from a young age. And I mean, I feel like this is diving deep very quickly, but with, with all of that, just terror and, and pain and chaos, um, that existed around you, um, people murdered, violated, um, used in terrible ways. How have you learned to maintain hope? Yeah, I mean, you know, I also don't want to kind of exaggerate what the situation was. Life still went on. Sure. Uh, people still loved each other in many ways. This living in that kind of a situation created an alternative system within mm. the existing system that was based on solidarity. I mean, mm. that was also the name of the uh, protest mm. movement that emerged. Uh, so that too created a lot of hope. But, you know, for me, I mean, I had this very simple experience of, I remember, and that was kind of one of my first really spiritual experiences of, uh, of sensing something from the priests that I was seeing. Mm -hmm. And then as a result, wanting to embody that in my own little way as I was just a kid and building a little altar at home and trying to say mass because mm. in my mind that was how you related to God that was how you related to the divine and you know in Poland a lot of language uh, around God was very motherly uh, because the most important kind of symbol of Poland is the Black Madonna yes. uh, of Częstochowa, who's kind of considered to be our mother and she has two scars on her face. And for us, that meant that she's sort of feeling our pain. Mm. And that meant that we could bring to her all of our suffering and she would hold us with that. Mm. Um, and somehow infuse us with with something that could help us to carry on. Mm. And so I think a lot of my early hope came from having those kinds of experiences and also realizing that I can do something. Mm. Uh, so things like activism and this desire to change the world was really something that was present all, all around me. And I think I grew up with that. I remember my parents telling me not to pick up, uh, you know, the pro-democracy posters, because as a kid, I would just pick them up on the streets and bring them home because they were afraid that we'll get arrested. But it was from early on, I had this sense that our life here on this earth, like we have a choice. Mm -hmm. And, and that choice uh, should be about 
doing something for the world, mm -hmm. transforming the situation. Um, and that saying yes to God means that we have to say no to everything that violates God's love mm -hmm. and justice in the world. Um, so that was the that was the experience, that was the conviction. Uh, and of course, if you asked me back then, I doubt that, you know, like I would have been able to articulate that. But now this is kind of how I connect the dots, mm -hmm. how I understand what was emerging in my little psyche of a of a 10 year old or 12 year old, you know. Yes, yes. And I love that that sense of community, the system within the system is a big part of um, what sustained you and gave you hope going forward, because I think that's often what we find we have to do today as well. Absolutely, absolutely, because our world is sort of collapsing. Um, our systems are no longer stable. Mm -hmm. And there's so much injustice and instability all around us. And I think that, again, we are called to that kind of organizing, that kind of building of solidarity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think even just having an outlet like so many people often feel um, powerless, you know, when they see all the news across the world today and they feel powerless and hopeless. But to find different, to find these little systems within a system, the microcosm, other people who are um, passionate about making a difference in the world and being activists and um, e even in just small ways, you know, you don't have to go to a protest necessarily, but finding ways to love the people in your community, you know, and serve locally. I think that does really give us hope. Like I can do something about this. Yeah. And, you know, I think for me, what I've discovered over the years that it's actually very helpful to claim that feeling of hopelessness, of mm. powerlessness, and to claim that in community and to sit with that, mm. to confess that, to put that on the table and make that, turn that into a centerpiece around which we can gather together and be present to that hopelessness, that powerlessness. And in my experience, when we do that, um, a certain receptivity and openness is generated within ourselves and within our communities and then if we can stay long enough with it, uh, we do transition into hope, but it's God that becomes the hope in us. Mm. Um, it's God that becomes the power in us. And I think that in some ways, um, what we're going through as a society, as a species right now, in some ways is comparable to what um what saint john of the cross mm -hmm. talked about when he talked about an individual journey of the dark night uh, and i think that we can learn a lot from that individual process as to how we should be present to what's happening on a societal and and global level and i mean through you know writings from different mystics and traditions when we are taken into those times of trial and and testing so to speak and purification uh, we have to on some level consent mm. to things just sort of falling apart mm -hmm. and to be present with all that is in a state of receptivity and listening and consent and out of that change happens and i think that that is the danger in a way with you know, activism that is not necessarily grounded in spiritual practice, that we try to uh, think ourselves into solutions. And a lot of those things are helpful, and I'm all for planning and strategic action and etc. But the risk there is that we can uh, try to generate solution that solutions that will be grounded in the very part of ourselves that contributed and maybe even built the, the 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 situation that that we are experiencing right now and i think as spiritual practitioners we are invited right now especially to travel deeply into that hope into that despair and to invite the divine to be there with us and to see what can emerge out of that process as we 
cultivate this kind of a confessional way of being, confessing our pain, confessing our helplessness, and then generating that receptivity and sitting and waiting for that impulse of God that I believe we all have access to in, you know, in the depths of our hearts, but also in the midst of our communities. If we can gather together in such way that our relationships and how we're relating to each other can almost build a container into which grace can descend mm. and do the work mm. of healing. And so I think that in some ways, you know, when I speak about engaged contemplation, I'm talking about something like that action that comes from that uh, receptive posture and again you know i spend most of my life being an activist and being engaged in service um i'm 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 not necessarily against that um uh, but i think that these times especially uh, call us for prayer for fasting for emptying of what we think we know and for receptivity so we may receive the instructions, so we may receive, uh, you know, the presence that can carry us forward in ways where our talents and what we know may be used in ways that we maybe can't imagine yet. Yes, I love that because it's so, I mean, that's really the heart of what contemplation is, is that stance of receptivity you know I like yes. to call that the Marian stance where you're just palms open but so, I mean it's hard to sometimes receive despair and powerlessness and pain but it is really beautiful I love that image of the community forming that container in which grace can be poured out and received because it's it is very painful especially to do it on our own. And so yeah. to have that with others and to come together as that centerpiece, as you said, you know, with others saying like, this is really hard, <laughs> you know? It's very hard. And that's why I think that, you know, and there are so many conversations going on about how to renew the church, how to make the church relevant again, how to re-envision or reinvent what our theology is. And again, all of those projects are very helpful. But in the end, this path that we call Christianity, and I do believe that it's a path mm -hmm. uh, and a practice, is very simple. It's us gathering in a small group and listening and wrestling, you know, with what God says to us through listening through scripture um and then building courage with each other through confessing forgiving and other things uh giving courage each other to respond to what we hear god uh saying to us uh, and giving each other uh i think it's maybe richard Rohr who said the dangerous permission to say yes mm. uh, you know that's the path and then hopefully to do that within the context of, you know, breaking bread and the sacraments and and getting loved up by God and then going into the world and living differently. Yes. Uh, yes. There's such a different, um, I don't know, sense of light or um, I don't want to say levity because it's not like, you know, not like we're going out joking around necessarily, but the, I guess the sense of levity that hope brings, you know, yeah. when people can walk out and say like, I have faced my powerlessness and I'm depending on God to do something about it. <laughs> you yeah. know, like yeah, to show exactly. up in this space. Exactly. And and I feel like oftentimes, you know, when you talk to people who gather in communities like that, they literally feel infused with mm -hmm. something that they know is not coming from them. Mm-hmm. And that moves them into the world with confidence and trust. Doesn't mean that it's, you know, all hearts and flowers. Life is still difficult. Yes. We still have our basic challenges. Uh, you know, we still have to work on ourselves and all that. Um, but the context for it changes. Yes. Yes. I feel like all of this makes a lot of sense of, of your book title, you know, let your heartbreak be your guide. Um, 
what what inspired the writing of this book and putting it together because it it sounds like it's emerged from a lot of um, reflection around this topic. Yes, so you know, in many ways, I was not planning to write this book, but uh, a friend of mine, uh, an editor from Orbis. Uh, asked me to put together some of the things that I've been talking about, that I've been preaching. And mm -hmm. so a lot of what's in the book actually emerged in conversations, in sermons, at the beginning of the pandemic, when we were still gathering on Zoom because it was unsafe to meet in person in New York City. Um, so a lot of the stories and other things that are in the book come from that period. Mm. Um, now, I tell stories from kind of, you know, in many ways, the book is very autobiographical, mm -hmm. but I was basically trying to show up at the beginning of the pandemic in a way that could help people to listen. Mm. to not just move into activity, which we saw, you know, all of a sudden, I mean, just looking at social media during the first few days of the pandemic, everyone who's a meditation teacher was leading meditations. Everyone who's a priest was like doing, you know, celebrating live streaming Eucharist from their kitchen table and uh, all that stuff. And it felt like everyone was just looking for an audience because mm. everyone who was involved in the field of spirituality somehow felt that they needed to do something that would be an offering to others. Mm. And at that point, you know, at the Cathedral of the Incarnation, where where, where I am a, a priest, we decided to just stop mm. for a few days and to just sit and listen. And out of that emerged, you know, quite a few different actions including feel you know feeding um uh you know people in hospitals who were working 24 7 and etc um but i think that through that um a period you know i was trying to come up with stories from my life examples experiences that i've had to offer them to people in a way where um those experiences could help them to get in touch with their own experience, mm -hmm. with their own moments of grace, with their own moments of being touched by God. Uh, so this way, that could kind of help them to touch base with who they really are in God and begin to show up from that place. And so some of the chapters of the book initially were sermons that were delivered on Zoom church, some of the thoughts in some chapters emerged in conversations on the street, you know, as we were feeding people or conversations through different programs and interviews. And then when I was asked to put it together for a book, I sort of rewrote all of that and, and put it into a form that I thought maybe could work as a book. You know? Yes, yes. It is so nice that's little... What that's what happens there. Yes, yes. I, I like the little vignettes and snapshots that you get. Um, and I find, I mean, I find that to be true at a lot of contemplative works. I mean, you try to read like, I don't know, James Finley or even Merton, you know, where they just give little nuggets because it's it's so contrary to our like left-brained analytical, you know, point three, sub point A, like you can't break down such profound truths so um matter of factly and so mm -hmm. sometimes it is easier to just give like snapshots and give example after example after example until people mm -hmm. start to um kind of absorb that and understand uh what mm -hmm. you mean on a very um, visceral level mm -hmm. so i love i love the format that you used um, I, I wanted to ask about one part in the book. You you describe your time in India um, as yeah. the biggest turning point of your life. And I was curious if you'd share a little bit about that, like what led you there and um, what, what happened that so dramatically impacted your life. Yeah, thank you for asking uh, about that. So, and just to give you a little context, uh, I immigrated to this country at the age of 17 with my mom. My dad was already here at that point. 
we came here as undocumented immigrants. At that point, I was not connected with the church in any kind of a strong way, because even though the church in Poland was so inspiring, once the system changed, the church tried to kind of replace the communist party and really run the system like a lot of kind of shadow energy came mm -hmm. up. And so a lot of our young people just simply left the church, not necessarily left this sense of the spirituality that we tasted there, but we started mistrusting the institution. And so when I came to this country, I think I started experiencing eventually things like, you know, panic attacks. Really, it was kind of symptoms of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think some of it was just related to having grown up uh, in the country where I grew up. Yeah. Uh, without necessarily processing it properly. And so when all of that started happening, I met a counselor, a Polish counselor who was a, a disciple of a, a Hindu spiritual master, and she taught me meditation mm. um, uh, and a few other things. And I it, it really started changing me a lot all of a sudden i felt like i was in touch with something deep within that was just natural to me when i was a child but being in new york city i just kind of lost it you know mm -hmm. um and remember i started having dreams of this spiritual master that she was following and i didn't really know what to do with that so she gave me a name of a bookstore in New York City, uh, which was called East West Books. Uh, it's no longer there today, but it was one, it was like a spiritual hub in the city uh, with an excellent selection of mystical writings from every tradition. Mm -hmm. uh, and I mean, an amazing selection, you know. Uh, uh, it was connected to an ashram. Mm. And there are also classes in meditation and all that. But I remember walking into that bookstore and picking up the first book and opening it, and there was um, a Himalayan monk with long dreadlocks just kind of walking through the Himalayas. And I remember thinking like, wow, that's my guy. You know, I already have dreadlocks. This is who I want to be. I mean, I was like 19 years old, you know. But that led me to uh, spending some time at Sachidananda Ashram, which was this kind of Hindu ecumenical ashram mm. uh, with a monastic component. It was also a center for interfaith dialogue where people like Father Thomas Keating or Roshi Bernie Glassman or Tessa Bilecki and others would go, Brother David Steindl Rast. So it was this very vibrant community where we, and at that point, Swami Sachidananda was still around. And, you know, he was this kind of a very beautiful character. He's the guy who opened Woodstock, essentially, with, with a speech, you know, to all those thousands of people um, about uh, how in order to fight for peace, we need to embody it deep within. Uh, so I went to that ashram, and that's where I learned what it meant to have a contemplative life, yeah. what it meant to have a rhythm of life, what it meant to serve the world in a way uh, where that service would become an offering to the divine, you know. And I think it was probably in that ashram that one of the Hindu swamis um, talked about people like Father Bede Griffiths and this whole movement of Christians uh, who formed this Hindu Christian ashram movement. Mm. Initially, many of them went to India, maybe even thinking that they would be spreading Christianity. But in the process, they were so inspired by the Hindu tradition that the conversion that happened was really in them. Yes. Uh, you know, it opened them up to a wholly new dimension of 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 how they viewed what Christianity was and what um, how it was related to other traditions and also absorbing the deep insights of Hinduism and Buddhism. 
and Sufism and so on. And so um, in that ashram, I discovered, you know, that kind of Hindu Christian ashram. And eventually, a few years later, that led me um, to India, uh, where I was supposed to spend time with Sister Vandana Mataji, who was both a Catholic nun and a Hindu nun. Mm. Um, and, uh, and she had this small hermitage at the foothills of Himalayas called Jivandara Sadhana Kutir. Um, and, you know, I learned a lot from her uh, and I went there, but on my way there in Delhi, I met a homeless child and meeting that homeless child, you know, skinny with her face, you know, burned with cigarettes, you know, bought and sold many times. Some Westerners were making porn films with her. Uh, it was kind of, for me, that was like an experience of meeting Christ who found me on an empty street in the middle of the night after arriving in India, took my hand and asked me to buy her something to eat. And that experience was really, I felt like, it was a call from God. Uh, I remember feeling so shattered by this encounter and feeling that whatever my life will be, it needs to include this child mm. somehow. So eventually I moved for a few months into a Christian ashram that was located outside of Delhi in the slums. Uh, and that was another kind of initiation of learning how to be with all this suffering people from the streets, street kids, adults, elders would just be brought into our ashram oftentimes with maggots in their bodies, you know, with multi-drug resistant TB, oftentimes HIV positive as quite a few were addicted to heroin. And so all of that in a way, you know, my initial ashram experience, the way because of my childhood trauma, I really embraced that kind of monastic framework of leaving the world. Mm. And some of that was really about my inability to deal mm. with my own trauma, with my pain, and dissociating from my body, from my feelings, from my life experience. Um, and I remember me meeting Tessa Bilecki. Uh, it was probably 1995. Uh, she was back then still a mother prioress of a Carmelite-inspired community. And I remember her saying, you know, the first step on a mystical journey is to fall in love with life. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking like, holy crap, falling in love in lo <laughs> with life. I don't even know that I'm really alive. Mm. You know, I experienced a lot of peace, but I was also very numb. Mm. And that was kind of, you know, so so that child, when she grabbed my hand, uh, really brought me back to earth, mm. uh, brought me back to all the pain, mm. uh, to all the trauma, both within myself, in my life, but also in the world. And out of that emerged, I think, a more integrated mm. way of being a contemplative Um that's why for me, contemplation and action are not two different things. Uh, action can become contemplation uh, if it is grounded in that posture of receptivity, mm. which for me, that's, as you said so beautifully, that's really the essence of contemplative practice as we see it uh, in the Christian tradition. Mm. Yes. Um, so that was kind of, you know, India experience for me. I went there to, uh, with a dream of becoming some kind of a Himalayan monk, but that didn't happen. Um, and I'm so glad because <laughs> for me, the path was to really re-enter the world and to face all the messiness of my own life, but also of the world. And and be before God, holding all of that pain on my heart before mm. God. Yes. You know, which is... for me, that's what intercession is. Mm. 
really the prayer of intercession, you know, which that phrase being with God, with people on our hearts or whatever comes from Michael Ramsey, one of the archbishops of, uh, of the Anglican communion. And I think that's sort of the best definition of intercession that I ever came across. I think. I love that. And there, thank you for sharing all of that because I feel like it's such a powerful experience and especially a recognizing how much um, our own trauma can get all jumbled up with our interior life, you know, and that's one of the reasons why I find that so important, you know, and things that I do at Spiritual Wanderlust and talking about like trauma and neuroscience and mental health and all of those things, because if, if we're not um, interfacing, engaging with our own pain, it's so easy to um, spiritually bypass <laughs> all the difficult things, mm -hmm. all the shadow. Um, and it, it ends up coming to kind of bite us in the rear one way or yeah. another. Um, you know, so whether we engage with it purposefully or oftentimes life brings it to us, whether it's, you know, meeting this homeless child and all of this pain kind of comes rushing to the surface and you're like, oh, or I, I feel like for me, it was, you know, leaving the convent in Rome and illness and all of that. And it was like, when I was cracked open physically, like emotionally, everything came up too. And I was like, oh, yeah. there's, there's a lot that needs to be um, faced, but with, with the divine, you know, and yeah. um, I, it also struck me too. Um, I, I think in the contemplative movement, there is still some of that uh, romanticizing of the monastic movement as if it is oh, a yeah. nice way to like flee the world. And I, you know, gosh, that would be nice to be a hermit and not have to deal with like crying children or, you know, whatever insurance and all of the different things. But I, I think it's, I love Evelyn Underhill in the way that she talks about, you know, um, the contemplative life, mystical union is such a, it's like embracing reality. You know, it's not fleeing at all. It's engaging. It's getting elbow deep in it all. And um, I think the way that you share that in, in your India story of seeing this like child who's been so abused and that being your entry point. Yeah. 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 And you know, this romanticizing of contemplative life, I mean, it happens quite often, not necessarily among uh, traditional monastics who right. <laughs> live it and know it very well, yes. the ups and downs, you know, of it, uh, but by people in the world. And there's a tendency to kind of also to intellectualize everything and, and turn it into this kind of an intellectual, mystical wrestling with things that sometimes can be quite detached from reality. And again, you know, I'm not against study. And I mean, I try to study every day, the texts and and, and all that. But in the end, it's quite simple, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think as we grow spiritually, the goal is to simplify our practice, is to simplify our own being. Mm. Um, and to just be there in a state of yes, in the presence of the divine. Yes, I love that. It is, um, it's it's in the ordinariness of our daily lives that all of this plays out and, and in the pain. But, you know, fortunately, there's yeah. also the joy and the, and the joy, you know, yeah. silly moments with your kids or grandkids, or, you know, whatever, just, um, yeah. yeah, all of it. Yeah. I, um, I wanted to ask a question too, um, because you have, you grew up in this different context and have, um, some more of that Eastern influence from, from your childhood. Um, I was curious who you would say are some of your, um, Eastern saints or role models that are particularly important for you. I know we, we share a love of like Catherine Doherty, um, Maximilian Colby, and I was curious who else you might name as. as yeah, Romans. so I would I would say that Catherine Doherty is uh, has been a very important influence uh, mm -hmm. because I think that she really beautifully combines East and West 
and also contemplation and action and the kind of action and sometimes very prophetic action like for example when she was challenging racism in the u.s uh, very kind of powerful and almost forceful and fearless way of critiquing you know the catholic establishment and universities of her day uh, with a deep mystical grounding of um you know the 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 practice of going into the desert of our hearts which she called pustinia um which is both a polish and russian word for the desert mm. and so i think that you know she has been a very very big uh influence on me in addition to that uh father jerzy popiłuszko uh, uh who is a martyr priest from Poland who preached nonviolence. My parish priest was his best friend and was also murdered for continuing Father Jerzy's work. And there's a, um, a very good documentary available online called The Messenger of the Truth, uh, which really talks about his life and, and his message. Um, also, um, Sister Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, mm. uh, who by many maybe wouldn't be considered to be more of an Eastern saint, uh, but you know she she grew up in uh, what is now the city of Wrocław uh, in Poland. Before that was German, and was very much influenced by that Eastern Jewish. Um, uh, Eastern European Jewish upbringing and she has been very important to me mm. kind of almost as an older sister mm. uh, especially in my 20s and early 30s I just had this very strong sense that I can really learn something from her you know Saint Seraphim and the great uh, hermit um and and healer of souls, uh, such a powerful, powerful uh, spiritual presence in Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. um, and then also Saint Faustina, you know, mm -hmm. the Polish saint of divine mercy. Uh, I often find myself repeating her her prayer, Jesus, I trust you quite often, often in English, you know, it's translated as Jesus, I trust in you. But the actual polish in her, in her journal, what Jesus tells her in terms of what it should be is Jesus, I trust you, not Jesus, I trust in you. Mm. And to me, that's much more intimate. Mm, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, it's not treating Jesus as a thing, but rather as a personal presence. And it's Tessa Bielecki, you know, who talks about God being a personal, passionate presence. And our response to God should be personal, personal, passionate presence. So big PPP with small PPP. And so to me, Jesus, I trust you is that kind of way of just being in openness and receptivity and consent. Mm. Mm. So those are some of the some of the saints, and then of course you know some some Jewish saints as well, uh, like um, uh, Rabbi Nachman, uh, one of the great you know Hasidic masters. Um, I, I had a, uh, a Jewish uh, you know Hasidic mentor. Uh, who spent his life working with street kids in New York City after being mentored by some of the great masters uh, in the Holy Land. Um, and it's really him who kind of infused me with the love of, of the spirituality that comes from, uh, you know, Rabbi Nachman. Mm. Uh, so those are some of my kind of Eastern European Yes. Um, influences you know yes i think we might have to do a class on them sometime because i feel like they're especially outside of like catholic circles like i don't know that people know about saint faustina or edith stein or Teresa benedicta of the cross but they have such powerful stories and very powerful stories and you know normally um and those saints are celebrated by uh, kind of the most conservative uh segments of the church um 
And I think they're saints who belong to everyone. Yes, yes. I mean, St. Faustina really revolutionized our idea of God, yes. that it's really, yes, you know, I mean, the classical Christian think about judgment you know is there and even liberation theologians like James Cone you know talked about not just love but judgment otherwise um, you know those who God has nothing to say to those who are oppressed mm -hmm. um, but you know without being able to judge those who oppress them and etc but like St. Faustina, you know, moves from that judgment into mercy, that the heart of God is really about divine mercy. Yes. Um, and that's a message that we need to hear, especially for those of us who maybe have not had a good experience with organized religion mm. and have been damaged by the overly judgmental, um, you know, understanding of the divine. Yes, yes. And I know her, her um, teaching about trust really changed my young spirituality when I first read her, you know, that mm -hmm. I basically as as a cure to worry and anxiety, like, I mean, if I can't do it, then God's going to have to do it for me, you know, yeah. and that that is an act of trust. Um, yeah, I feel like I could go on about that and this is you know very much with like also carmelite spirituality in saint Teresa of lisieux you know and you know eastern europe is very interesting i just want to maybe tell you this quick story sure we might be running out of time but in poland during the resistance uh there was this one special place which was um a community for blind children outside of warsaw and that community somehow became this kind of a hub for all the intellectuals hmm. uh, connected to the Catholic resistance movement, um, you know, fighting against the oppression of the totalitarian state. That's sometimes where they would gather to kind of strategize and to philosophize and, and theologize in hmm. terms of how to show up, you know, and meet oppression. And there's this Polish anarchist priest who's no longer alive he's his name is Jan Zieja who was this kind of a wisdom figure uh in Poland a very wise elder sort of a uh, to use a Russian uh word you know like a starets who mm -hmm. was really a guide to many and he tells this story how one time uh, the director of that house you know for uh, for blind children uh and they were struggling with paying mortgage Finally, they received the donation and he went to the bank and he puts the money, you know, to the bank teller and he said, I'm here to pay the mortgage for our facility. Uh, and the bank teller says, like, what do you mean? Why? You know, that woman already came here earlier and paid. And he's like, what woman? And she's like, that woman in your wallet, that picture. And it was a picture of St. Therese of Lisieux, um, you know, and so... I think Eastern Europe has mm. this kind of sense that the saints are, are real friends mm. and they are among us, you know, uh, sending roses, sending blessings, supporting us. Um, and I think that's something that this kind of awareness that we could really benefit from right now when things are quite hopeless. Mm. Mm -hmm. in our world so we can call upon them and 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 be open to the divine help yes that is available yes that is definitely something i would like to um explore more with people because it's such a a part of that um, interconnectedness and mystical union that we talk about you know, in this world of of mysticism, when you start to get this sense that we're all deeply connected, and it's not just with other humans that are like on the other side of the globe, and it's not just with the creatures, you know, and the trees, but it's also with those who have already passed, you know, yeah. and that they are so vividly alive and and want to support us and be with us. So I, I think that's a really important topic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
So we're we're coming in on time here, um, Adam, but I'm curious um, if people want to learn more about your work, about your monastic community, about your wonderful book, um, Let Heartbreak Be Your Guide, where should they go? So I have a website. It's fatheradambaco.com. Uh, and also the Center for Spiritual Imagination, which is the ministry of our new monastic community, has a website. It's spiritualimagination.org. Um, and uh, my book can be purchased uh, in most of the online outlets uh, where books are sold. Uh, Marvelous. Well, thank you so much for taking time to share with us today you. your story, your book. It's um, clear that you've been um, steeping in all of this for a long time. So it's fun to be able to hear um, the fruits of that as you begin to, uh, um, I think for a lot of us, it's helpful when someone else is connecting the dots for us and helps us connect our own dots. So I appreciate you. Well, thank you for bringing all of your experience, you know, tremendous experience uh, into this conversation. I'm really uh, really grateful for that. And, uh, you know, it's so nice that you are uh, building this community uh, of people who, um, as a result of all the amazing conversations that you've had with amazing teachers, can be inspired to begin to practice listening, to begin to practice trust. Yes. Because in the end, that's what... Uh, being a contemplative is all about. Amen. Yes, I'm thrilled to be able to welcome all of those who um, who are hungry for this, who have those longings that have a place that they can be fed. So thank you thank so you. much. Yeah, thank you so much, Adam. And thank you, everyone, for joining us today. We'll see you next time. spiritual wanderlust. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider leaving us a review or sharing it with others. It really does help us to reach more kindred spirits who are hungry for the depths. To learn more about what we're up to, or to access our free resources for spiritual growth, visit us at www.spiritualwanderlust.org. May your days ahead be spacious, sprightly, and surprising. See you next time.